Titus chapter 1. We continue in our study through Titus. Tonight will be a little bit different. We're a little more expository usually in nature, but tonight we're going to take the long road around to our subject matter. Don't get worried. It's just a long introduction to get to a very short message, I think. <laughs> Titus 1.5. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain the elders in every city as I appointed thee. Now skip down to verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, look what it says. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. I want to speak on the subject of leadership and confrontation. Now, when it comes to confrontation, it doesn't matter what your area of leadership, it is not pleasant, not desired, but a spiritual duty. And Paul is speaking to Titus and someone newer in ministry with much less experience and guiding him in these steps. I want to start by asking you, how are leaders made and developed? There's a lot of confusion in this day and age. Lies that are being told to our young people. And when we see the generation of leaders, leaders, quote unquote leaders in the world, not qualified. Uh, Leadership starts with fellowship. And they've never been taught to follow. Matter of fact, the world has told them that if they are a rebel, that qualifies them for leadership. Nothing can be further from the truth. Being a rebel disqualifies you, does not qualify you. And Titus had shown there by following Paul and his example and his leadership, uh, he had been in training and not just over a a period of years being given responsibility. Turn with me, keep your finger here, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. We understand what biblical, true biblical leadership looks like. It is serving. And that's what this generation doesn't understand. They don't want to serve. They think leadership is a position. It's power. And God says it's the opposite. Look what it says in verse 11. He that is greatest among you should be your servant. And being given leadership position just means that you have well developed your abilities and talents to serve a greater number of people. And the higher the position, the greater the amount of people that need help and demand help and the greater opportunity you have to be selfless in your service. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And 
Here's the confusion, our generation. They think the leadership is being trained to lead. No, it's being trained to follow. It's being trained to serve. We're leaders formed in our military. West Point. Anybody here know anything about West Point? Go talk to Brother Fred. You're not there and given a position. You're there and you're taught how to follow. Taught how to submit, taught how to obey, taught how to respect authority. And that is really the qualifying factors for leadership. And young people, when you look at Bible examples throughout the whole Bible, doesn't matter if it's Saul or David or Gideon, those positions that God gave them were very unexpected. And there's David. He's out there developing his leadership qualities, tending sheep. You know what that's doing? In humility, fulfilling his responsibilities, doing what he was told to do well, submitting to his father cheerfully, humbly, obediently. And God said, okay, that's the characteristics I'm looking for in a leader. And if you're not becoming a good follower, now this isn't anything new. I, I know this is not new to this congregation. I know it sounds redundant, these, these things are never redundant because with every generation, there is more training that is taking place and we are going counterculture. We are going against the world and their philosophies. And believe it or not, it is easy for this generation to become part or a product of their generation and start to adapt to the thinking that I'm a leader just because I want to be a leader. No, that doesn't make you a leader. That's right. Uh, Leaders become obvious over time because of their ability to follow, their desire to submit. And there's Gideon. We know the circumstances. He's not the subject matter tonight. But God hand picks him because he knows Gideon will follow his orders and submit. You wouldn't have pointed at Gideon and said, there's a great leader. But God said, there's a potential leader because it's, he is someone who has understood and learned how to follow. Young people, if you've not learned how to follow, you will never be qualified for leadership. And, but that leadership has to start somewhere. There's not a factory. I know we have Bible colleges around the nation. Those aren't factors for leadership. It starts in the home. It starts in the local church. It should start at a young age, parents. This is why you ought to teach in the home. Respect, give them duties, uh, provide them responsibilities, uh, expect obedience, prompt, immediate, cheerful obedience. Because all of those things are preparing your child. At some point, they will be in some level of leadership if it's just their home. It, whether or not it's a job, ministry, a church, whatever it is, at some point they will be given opportunities to lead and the responsibility to lead. They need to be prepared for that, both men and women. Yes. Because that mother is going to have to be leading her children at some point. And if she doesn't learn fellowship, there's going to be havoc in the home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. These are all overly simplistic, but we've got to take this path in order to get where we're hoping and wanting to go. 
but here's what happens. When that person is growing into leadership as a church in life, we position people into uh, opportunities to serve, ministries, provide them duties, and it may be a Sunday school class. It may be cleaning a building. It may be teaching at school, helping as an assistant. But you begin to shift people and move people into their responsibilities. And those that you surround them with are leading them to lead. And here's, here's what you're doing. Anybody in that spot that has any maturity or any brain cells at all is not eager. Yeah, there's an eagerness in wanting to serve, but there's not an eagerness in the position because there's an understanding. First of all, it's new. Second of all, there's always the thought of how am I going to fail? Am I going to do this right? Who am I going to disappoint? How do you understand what I'm talking about? You can go back to those initial moments and beginning days. When, when you're being put into positions of leadership and you're trying to figure out exactly what am I supposed to do, you're receiving orders trying to get the mindset of that leader and follow those orders. This is all a process. So when we talk about Titus and he's supposed to confront, I'm, I'm talking about heretics that had infiltrated the church and he's got to be harsh. And Paul says, you better go to Crete and put things in order because this church, this congregation is going to be devastated if you don't show confrontational leadership okay that just doesn't happen because you got a bible college degree you're a bachelor in theology you're not ready to confront this boatload of knuckleheads and there's a process of qualifiers and it starts with humble service and fellowship that is going through a proper process and young people you need to embrace the process that God has you in because whether or not you pastor a church or become a church planner or go to the mission field or lead a Sunday school class you are being in, in God's preparation taken to the next step of whatever he has for your life and leadership. And if you go into those positions unprepared, the last thing you're going to do is confront. Now we're talking about biblical confrontation. Confront is the Holy Spirit of God would guide you to do. Guess what a father is going to have to do at some point? Confront someone in that home. You know why we have such disasters in our Christian homes? We have spiritual leadership that doesn't know how to confront or refuses to confront. You know why we have disaster in our churches? Because we have pastors that don't know how to confront or refuse to confront sin and wrong behavior that must be confronted. And here's what our culture, our world, our society is doing. They're handcuffing those that are in position to confront. Our police force is being handcuffed. Our prison system is being handcuffed. Our justice system is being handcuffed because no one wants anyone to confront any kind of evil doing. And as a leader, you're going to be at a spot where sooner or later you're going to have to confront. Now, here's what we're doing. 
that, that confrontation we're going to talk about for just a few minutes, but the path getting there is what I'm concerned about. None of you young men or young ladies, those in the first few rows, you are not prepared to confront. If, if we were to put you in, in this position, say, go to Crete, and there's a bunch of heretics that have to be confronted and rebuked sharply, you're not qualified, you're not qualified, you're not qualified, you're not qualified. It doesn't matter where I point my finger. Because there's a process, and one day you might be qualified, but unless you go through that process, and we, we want to speed up the process, we want to determine the length of the process, uh, we want to determine the qualifications of the process, and God doesn't do that. God puts people in our paths and circumstances and situations and responsibilities, and this step is... In preparation for the next step in the next responsibility. And Titus had taken those steps. But here's what happens. When you put people in those places of leadership to lead, what you're trying to do in the training process is make sure that they are surrounded by people who will help them in their development by encouraging them to lead. Now, this is important for you to understand. Okay, church, stay tuned in here. I don't, I don't need to lose you. So, when I put someone back there in junior church, I put someone that those kids are going to lead in their leadership. So there's no way I can put Weston or Azariah in charge of junior church because those kids are not going to follow the leadership. They're not going to lead as right to lead because he's not old enough, mature enough, trained enough. But if I get the right person who's taking the right steps, guess what they're going to do? They are going to be encouraged. And in following his leadership, they lead that person to lead. And through that encouragement of the fellowship. They step up because just because they say, okay, this person through a series of steps has built up enough respect that we encourage him and doesn't matter what he does. And even when he makes mistakes, they don't notice them. They don't highlight them. They get encouraged by the songs, although the songs aren't perfect and the game time is not perfect and the message isn't perfect and the outline is not perfect and the illustration is not perfect, but they're still smiling and they're still excited. And guess what? They are leading that leader to lead, which is a development of leadership. And I am wrong in the positioning if I place someone in a ministry or responsibility where the fellowship is incapable of leading that leader to lead. So, in that class, guess what we're doing? We have college students that are teacher assistants and they're learning the process and they're learning the protocols in the class and they're learning if i were to put them in as a freshman to lead that class they would probably be laughed out of that class that class would be so unruly they wouldn't be capable of leading and what would i would destroy that's counterproductive i would destroy their ability to develop as a leader because the fellowship is truly what develops the leadership you got to get this. Young ladies, 
If you're going to have a good marriage, God has established leadership in the home. It's not you. So when you, when you look at that man and you say, I will marry you, remember this. You're saying, I accept you as my what? Spiritual leader. Father's the most important question you can ask that young man when he comes and says, can I marry a daughter, is are you capable? Now, you shouldn't have to ask this question. This should already be answered. But you need to ask him all the same. Are you capable of being the spiritual leader for my daughter? Every one of these young ladies on a different level. Some young men can be their spiritual leader, but not every young man can be their spiritual leader. Some are going to take a more developed spiritual leader. But as soon as they step into marriage, the only way for that man to develop as a spiritual leader is for her to lead him to lead. And there's a lot of men that have never developed in the spiritual leaders they're supposed to be because the wife never encouraged him. Is it, Pastor, he's not a spiritual leader? Why did you choose him as your spiritual leader if he's not capable of being your spiritual leader? Now, if he's young, he's immature. He's going to have to develop. Encourage him in his Bible reading. Encourage him to get around the right kind of mentors. And encourage him in his spiritual growth. But if, if you said, I do, and you said, until death, do his part, you as a Christian have chosen that man for life as your spiritual leader. You've got to help him develop. You do not help him develop by trying to take the lead or by opposing his leadership. So there are men that are not the spiritual leaders they're supposed to be. Not because they're squirrels. Not because they're wimps. Not because they don't know their responsibility, but because they have a woman in the house that refuses to lead them to lead. Refuses to encourage them in their leadership. I think now that I have followers that encourage me in my leadership. Now, Cap City, when I came here 14 years ago, that wasn't the case in every case. But I thank God for the base at Capital City that even in the hard decisions encouraged me, even in my youth and even when things were new, still encouraged me in my leadership. And the only way I could grow daily into becoming a better leader was to have followers that were leading me to lead and say, Pastor, you know what? We're going to give you a little leeway here. We're going to allow you to make a few mistakes. We're going to follow your leadership. And that develops the leader because no leader ever steps in totally prepared to do what God has positioned him or called him to do. No man steps into marriage ready to properly lead that home. No man steps into fatherhood. He's inexperienced. This is totally brand new. He steps in. If, if, if not, it's because it's the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth marriage, and that's not the man you're looking for. Okay, there's a little logic here. So you have to say everyone that's in leadership has to learn somewhere and I can be part of their learning curve and I'm okay with that. Can, can some of you help me out tonight? There, there's some principles here that will help your home, it will help your life, it will help you grow. If you say... 
I can be part of someone's learning curve and encourage them in their leadership and lead them to lead. And here's what we do in the college. We're positioning people and we're training people. And you have to deal with a few mistakes here and there and say everything's not going to be perfect. It's not the way I would do it or want to do it. But I'm trying to develop them in their leadership. And so wherever I position them, I want to put them around a group of followers. Maybe I have to put them with third graders to start out with. Or maybe three-year-olds. You know what my first congregation was in college? Three-year-olds. I had 40 to 45 three-year-olds. I remember when the Sunday school director come by every Sunday. How many got saved? I've not figured out how to lead a three-year-old to Christ. He'd tell me every Sunday, you need to get busy. Get busy. The bathroom line is busy and the cookie mess is busy. And Get me out of this class. Now, why did God put me there with three-year-olds? He said, until you can handle 53-year-olds, you're not going to handle 50, 30-year-olds. So guess what? They were putting up with my mistakes in leadership, and I had their followship sometimes. <laughs> and then they moved me to the four- and five-year-old church. The four- and five-year-old church auditorium was not that much smaller than this one. And it filled with four- and five-year-olds. And God was saying, let's see if you can get four- and five-year-olds to follow your leadership. And I got a team. And I remember, we, you had to be so careful, that group. You have a couple of hundred of them. And getting them situated and teaching them and instructing them. And anyways, I, I don't even know how to say this without you guys doubting your pastor's character. So I had a couple of kids that were demon-possessed. I mean, literally. <laughs> and I told the brother, Kevin, don't bring them back. Two brothers. I said, don't bring them back. And they brought them back. And I said, send them home. We can't send them home. They got to stay. And the next week, I said, don't bring them back. They brought them back. I found out they're afraid of heights. And one of these kids, I thought he was going to murder someone. I said, go, just go sit them on the Pepsi machine. <laughs> Bad choice. <laughs> the day after church, took all the kids home. My bus route was way over by Brother Gaddis' church. Where'd our missionary go? Where the owner was? All the way over there. He used to drive all the way over there to pick up kids. And by the time I got back to the church, 2 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and there was Dr. Vineyard in the parking lot. I thought, man, he's never in the parking lot Sunday afternoon. Uh, he must have had a rough day. I didn't realize I was part of his rough day. And then when we turned there, I thought, that's weird. He's in the parking lot. It's hot. And then he just went like this. And those were the same two fingers that he used to kill people with. <laughs> then he said some very nice things to me that I cannot repeat those words in church. He told me the risk I'd put the church in by doing something that stupid. Now, 
Here's what we don't like to do. We don't like the process of leadership, which starts with a three-year-old church and a four- and five-year-old church and a junior church. And here's what God was doing. God was growing me in leadership because I, if I couldn't properly confront a four- or five-year-old, how was I going to properly confront a 45-year-old? And here's what he was doing with Titus. I've got to put you with people who can encourage you in your leadership because if I position you improperly, those people are going to discourage you. Instead of developing you, you're going to go backward. You're going to become an angry, bitter, overreactive person. And here's what we're seeing in life. People in the process, because they got positioned improperly, married wrongly, have a woman that won't support the leadership, whatever the case may be, instead of developing into good godly leaders as God desires. And I thank God for the family that supports my leadership. And I thank God for the staff. And I thank God for the church. I thank God for all of that. And when we start our church in Argentina, Mexico, yes, you have occasional problems. But I thank God for people that God used to help develop me in my leadership and in your fellowship, you've got to understand this principle that God has put leaders around you and you're part of their development. And if you show proper fellowship, you're helping them develop. That's why Ephesians 6 says, children obey, wives submit. Servants obey your masters. He addresses the fellowship first. Thank God for a wife that's only helped me Submission, ladies, is not weakness. Young people, you want to know how to have dad and parents that grow into the leadership that God wants them to be? You submit to them and you develop them. And guess what happens? When you submit to leadership, leadership submits to you. You know what? My wife and I, we, we plan it. Where are we going to go? I ask her. First thing I do, I submit to her. Where, where do you want to eat? There are times we go to the mall. I promise you this, that was not even on my list. It wasn't low on my list. It was not on my list. But I submitted to her. You know why? She doesn't give me any problems in my decisions. So her submission to me makes it very easy for me to submit to her. Because I have a church that follows me and a staff that follows me. There are things Robert does in music or in decisions where I submit to him. Not that I'm always in total agreement, but because there is submission. Submission is a two-way street. He's a big enough man, strong enough in character to submit even at times when he doesn't feel like submitting to the decision or to the direction. So that submission creates mutual submission and we help each other develop proper biblical Amen. leadership. Amen. When I came here, Pastor Bob, 58 years my senior, did not have to submit. He didn't have to. But he did. You know what Pastor Bob did? He and Lori helped develop me as a leader by submission and his submission brought mutual submission, and we've helped each other to develop as leaders Amen. through submission. Amen. Now, let me tell you who my favorite P 
people in the church are. Those who lead me to lead. Guess who my least favorite people are? <laughs> Those who can't follow any leadership. Is that not natural? Is that not happening in your ministry or your home or your responsibilities? Or when you're the oldest sibling and you've been left in charge of the family and you've got three that say, I know what mom said, but in my eyes, you ain't nobody. I'm not going to complain about carrots for dinner. I like carrots, Uriah. <laughs> I think mom said we like carrots. We must like carrots. We eat them a lot. Now, here's the truth about leadership. Biblical leadership, a biblical leader is a gentleman. And, and a gentleman does not force himself. Church, I don't understand what's going on in, in men getting thrown out of their ministries. You will never have to vote me out of this church. You never have to kick me out of this church. Okay, if you're not encouraging me to lead, I'm not here to force you to follow my leadership or to boss you around. Okay, your pastor will be way down the road before you ever take that vote. I have no interest in leading people that don't want me to lead. And if your husband is true biblical leadership, he's a gentleman, he is not going to impose himself or his will or his decisions upon you. Well, I wish my husband would lead. Get over here. <laughs> now, once again, I'm not talking about a pipsqueak, a wimp, or a squirrel. I'm just talking about someone who's gentleman enough to say, at some point, woman, you've got to decide if you're going to follow this leadership or not, because I'm not going to spend every day fussing with you. And there are fathers that aren't the spiritual leaders they're supposed to be because they're tired of the fuss. At some point, you've got to lead them to lead. You've got to encourage them in their spiritual leadership, and you do that through spiritual fellowship. And if you don't step up and say, you know what? You're, you're doing God's will. Not perfect. Uh, you got the book. You got Bible principles. You're not leading us to do the wrong thing. We don't agree all the time. Ladies, be careful because... True, this is in the pulpit, this is in the home, this is in the ministries. True, biblical, Christ-like, spirit-filled leadership makes that person a gentleman. And if you don't want leadership, you know what they're going to do? They're not going to fuss with you. They're not going to scream at you. You've left them with no choice. I know pastors who've backed up in their leadership. The church has left them no choice. They stepped into a bad situation. They didn't even know the opposition of the church. They stepped in, and the vote was 85% in their favor, and then they found out they had the 85% against them that hamstrung their development as a leader. And guess what? Someone say, well, I don't think he's much of a leader. No, he didn't step into a place where there's much of a fellowship. So instead of developing him as a leader now, for him to stay would just make him worse in his development because he's getting more angry and more frustrated and more hurt and eventually more bitter. That is not spiritual development. I've put people in ministries before where I realized wrong spot because the fellowship was not developing the leadership and I had to move and rearrange and say, I've got to replace you. That doesn't mean you're no good. That means put you in a new place 
where the fellowship is helping you develop in your leadership. Now, in this, the leadership needs to support each other. Okay? We're getting closer to our talk tonight, but you're going to understand how all this comes together. Leadership is developed because at some point there will have to be a confrontation, but normal steps of leadership should not be regular confrontation. A home should not be filled with confrontation. A marriage should not be filled with confrontation. A ministry should not be filled with confrontation. A church should not be filled with confrontation. I shouldn't have to confront people Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The home should be a refuge. The church should be a refuge. Every ministry ought to be a refuge. And you can walk in and you can just listen if there's any buzz or if there's silence. You can see and feel tension or joy or happiness. Have you ever been in a house and you're like, oh, tense? Right? You just jumped in and you realize, oh boy, I don't know if I caught a wrong moment or this a lifestyle, but it is tense. I've been in churches before that were tense. I've been to people's staff meetings that were tense. I've, I've been places, I don't want any part of that. Because when things in order, it, it, it's not that they're perfect, but there is a joy, there's a cohesion, there's a unity, there's a passion, there's a love, right? When that dissipates, there's a problem. Now, part of that is because leadership doesn't understand the importance of supporting leadership. And this starts in the home. Wife, you need to support the husband. Husband, you need to support the wife. And you're not going to agree. I, I laugh at these kids. I found someone just like me. Get away from me. If you're marrying someone just like you, you are a weirdo. Get out of here. You're marrying them because they're the opposite of you. They're the completer. They are what you aren't. It's a good thing. So then you get into marriage and you want them to be what you are. And guess what? Usually someone is stricter and someone is more lenient. Someone is harsher. Someone's less harsh. Someone believes discipline for everything. And someone believes discipline for nothing. Someone believes disciplines of God, and someone believes discipline is straight out of the pits of hell. And guess what happened? You you got to get on the same page in the sense of showing unity in your leadership, because the destruction of fellowship is disunity in leadership. And if you're not saying at least publicly, your kids know there are, there are times Kim didn't agree with my decisions. You know what she did publicly? She feigned agreement. There were times I did not agree with my wife. Sometimes it was a meal choice. Sometimes it was a choice of instruction. Sometimes it was a starting point of a school class. It didn't matter what it was. There was no point in our marriage, no point in our marriage where our children would ever see a disagreement. That's a destruction of the leadership by a destruction of the fellowship. God did not put me there to confront her leadership because we're not always in 100% in agreement. Please, church, help. So in a marriage, here's how you're strengthening your leadership and you're strengthening fellowship to become leadership is by showing unity 
And when there are disagreements, you take those to a private place and you sit down and you work through them. But you never show. I, I don't need someone to know that Pastor Robert and I are in disagreement over something that was done in the college or something that was done in the music program or something with Pastor Bob was done wrong in the school. For all the people around here know and our teachers know, I am 100% behind this man. I'm 100% behind that man. And if there's ever a disagreement, you know where we go? An office and a closed door and no listening ears. Amen. And we sort through what has to happen because I will destroy fellowship through disagreement with leadership. And here's what, here's what some of you are doing. You're making sure that your kids are never capable leaders because you have to always disagree with the teacher. You have to disagree with the pastor and the boss. You don't agree with anyone. So in your life, all they've ever heard you do is attack leadership. And you've made them unqualified for leadership. They should never see that kind of disagreement. I don't understand what that teacher's doing. I do. They have 12 kids. You have two. You can't control two. So you sent one of your demons to someone who's not DNA to control 12 and you didn't like the control of 12 when you couldn't control two. Everything explained right there. So the best thing you can do for yourself, here's what happens. When you undermine their leadership, you're undermining your own leadership. You're destroying a follower, and if they can't become a good follower, they'll never become a good leader. So when we talk about confrontation, we got to understand the right kind of confrontation. Confrontation is not you as a parent saying, I'm going to go confront that teacher. It's not you in the batter box saying, I'm going to go confront that umpire. You're an idiot. strike you know what you go through the training you go wear the big ridiculous plastic outfit that they do you go stand behind the batter you go eat dust you go get yelled at and then you tell me what a strike is but don't sit up in the bleachers a hundred feet away and tell me what a strike is Leadership is saying, I understand that I can't undermine leadership through confronting leadership in front of fellowship. That, that undermines everything. So when we're talking about what Titus was sent to do, can we understand the principles? He was grown into a leadership position. None of this comes easy. And in the process, we're faced with Minor confrontations, and this, this is a dating relationship or courtship. Minor confrontation, marriage, more major confrontations. If they're not growing in that, there's a problem. And if they haven't learned how to confront a 12-month-old or an 18-month-old, how are they going to learn to confront an 18-year-old? So we're growing in those proper confrontations, but we have to understand this should not be a regular battle. And... Most people, because they're not true biblical leadership, they're confronting the wrong time, wrong person, wrong situation. 
Paul gave very specific instructions to the leadership. There are heretics that are destroying households. There are people that are going around teaching false doctrine. They're taking good people out of church. They're confusing our youth. Their mouths must be stopped. You're going to have to go in and rebuke them harshly. Now, he tells you about the Christians. There are a lot of problems. He didn't say, go in and tell them, slow belly. Bunch of slow bellies. He said, you go find that heretic and you confront the heretic. Because there are other things you're not qualified to confront. You don't need to confront. The timing's not right. Right now, you need to make sure the fellowship is leading you to lead and when they're encouraging to lead, then you have the right to confront. Now, here's what a confrontation is. Confrontation is dealing with the person who has chosen to be a rebel against the leadership. You know what we do in the home? We make confrontation where it's not needed. The three-year-old spills them out. What did you do? You broke a glass. Did you want to explain that? That was a needless confrontation that made you look bad and hurt your relationship. So much confrontation, a wasted time and energy that hurts relationships. Biblical confrontation confronts the rebel that refuses biblical authority. That's biblical confrontation. Properly, biblically, timely, appropriately done because there's a serious reason there is someone either unsaved, acting unsaved, carnal, far from God, resisting the truth. Okay, God said, go confront that. So why did you confront your wife? Fit in that category. Why did you confront your husband? Be careful. We, we get in this confrontational mode where we start to do harm when it's unnecessary. Talk about confrontation. Can you imagine if I confronted every mismovement in our two churches? Folks, I lose, I pastor two churches, I lose my mind. So you know what happens? Some of you think, well, pastors should have confronted that. That's why you're not pastoring. You're wasting your time. That'll fix itself. That person will fix himself. And if I confronted everything you wanted me to confront, I would lose the fellowship and my ability to lead. Leadership is the ability to properly understand what must be confronted. And most pastors are confronting what doesn't need confronted and not confronting what needs confronted. Because what really needs confronted will rip you up inside. It'll tear you up because you know I could go spirit-filled and I could deal with this properly and I had to hope that they come to a point of biblical repentance. That stuff will tear you up. Most people think confrontation is an unspiritual endeavor that allows you to vent your frustrations on the people closest to you. That is not biblical confrontation. So you irritated me. You frustrated me, whether you're my child or my spouse or someone in my ministry. And so I'm going to vent my rage and my frustration, my anger on you. Sorry, that's not biblical confrontation. Biblical confrontation is seeing 
praying, spiritually preparing, understanding, and then confronting. That is what Titus was sent to do. You go put in order. And there's a few people, by the way, you're going to have to confront, and you better be spiritually prepared.